From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Dolores River in southwest Colorado is flowing. Boaters have been thrilled, but it's likely a blip in the face of climate change. Today, how the Utes have managed to thrive despite pilfered water rights in the Four Corners. The tribes keep getting the short end of the stick for multiple reasons. Then you can't teach happiness. It's not a science. Wait, a new course at CU blows both of those myths out of the water. And later, let's be mortified together as I read on stage from my teenage diaries written in code. In my secret language, I let myself dream about a secret future. One day, I'll be traveling with my boyfriend. I'll be in shape and I'll feel so free. The success of Colorado Public Radio relies on support from active members. Members like you are necessary in order for CPR to be your source for in-depth news and music discovery. Our fiscal year ends June 30th. You can help keep this service strong and help keep funding goals on target with your gift today. Help fuel news and music on Colorado Public Radio now and in the year to come at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The boating has been great on the Dolores River near the Four Corners. And that's unusual because the Dolores often does not look like a river. Floating on the Dolores was magical. I mean, this river that runs, at least at a boatable level, so infrequently felt very rare and very special. Um, There were hundreds of other people on the river in all kinds of boats, you know, everything from tiny pack rafts to, you know, full rafts with families. Scott Braden was one happy camper this spring as the scarcity of water he's so used to in the Southwest relented some. It really felt as if the river and the whole riparian corridor was really kind of healing itself. Well, we're going to learn about the Dolores River today, its history, and how it could foreshadow things for the much bigger Colorado River. Let's begin with our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess. The Dolores River is actually flowing this year thanks to good snowpack in the San Juan Mountains. That snow melts and runs down into the river. Each year, much of that melted snow is stored behind McPhee Dam, diverted to farms and cities around southwestern Colorado. This year, because there's so much snow, there's some left over to go down the river. This is a huge contrast to what the Dolores has looked like recently. You can see it in a new film, The River of Sorrows. It shows the Dolores River flowing at barely a trickle and a dry riverbed in some places. Here's filmmaker Cody Perry. Seven out of the last 20 years have essentially looked like the conditions that we encountered. So it's increasingly becoming more normal to see the river dewatered in such a way. That's because there's been less precipitation for decades now, and the water that does come down is overallocated. The river can't provide as much water as people have rights to use. Sound familiar? This is exactly what's been happening on the much larger Colorado River, only the Dolores is in even worse straits. So, over the years, conservationists, farmers, and others started talking about how to protect the environment around the Dolores River, Again, Scott Braden, director of the Colorado Wildlands Project. 
that's just a wonderland of red rock canyons and mesas through some of the most remote areas of Colorado's western slope. The compromise they're advocating for now is called a National Conservation Area. It would lock in protections for more than 68,000 acres of land. It would ban new mining or dam projects. As a trade-off, it would also keep intact existing water rights and private property rights and remove the area from consideration for more stringent environmental protections. That matters for the ecology and the wildlife, and for the people who use the Dolores' water. Steve Garcher is a Dolores County Commissioner, and he says there aren't really other options to get water in the area. You can't drill a potable water well in a lot of locations, and we depend on the river for that water. Colorado's members of Congress introduced a bill to establish this compromised set of protections, but it may not solve the river's longer-term problem, that there are more straws in it than Mother Nature can support. Getting to this compromise means the proposal has near-universal support in the counties where the land would be protected, including from both the state's Democratic U.S. Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, and Western Slope Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, a Republican. It still may not get through Congress, though. Filmmaker Cody Perry again. The kind of consensus building that we've seen behind this effort and the kind of ground support that is present in the counties that have especially been in that for the long haul, you know, they're, that'll make it happen. I mean, I, my, my confidence in Congress is another question. That's left some conservationists anxious enough that they want to ask for something even bigger, directly from the Biden administration. Just the way presidents recently designated Camp Hale and Browns Canyon as national monuments in Colorado, Biden could protect the Dolores River area. It would be much bigger and potentially include more protections than the legislation in front of Congress. But discussions about that are just getting started and would take years, if it ever happens at all. CPR's Tom Hess. In dry years, the Ute Mountain Ute tribe gets hit hard. In 2021, the reservation's farm got only about 10% of its usual water supply. The next year it was better, but still only 40% of their allotment. Not getting adequate water for more than a century has challenged many tribes' ability to thrive in all aspects of life. We're going to talk more about that with Amarina Lee Martinez, who did her PhD on water management around the Dolores River. And Amarina, I'm glad to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the water users rather than the water itself. Ute tribes were spread all over what's now Colorado and were nomadic before they were forced onto reservations, right? So briefly paint a picture of where these tribes were around the state, will you? Sure. Ute tribal people lived in bands, which were basically family groups of 10 to 20 people and lived nomadically all over Colorado and in a landscape that extended into all the states around Colorado as well and kind of had homelands in different low country areas and then would travel into the high country in the summertime. And so movement was a really central part of Ute culture. Mm -hmm. So I hear it being family-based. I hear it being very fluid in terms of where they were based on seasons. In the late 1800s, after the establishment of reservations, Ute people used the Mancus River in the Four Corners. What happened when white settlers also wanted to use that water? Uh, the Utes should have had the most senior water rights to the Mancus River. When settlers began to move into that area after the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation was established in about the 1880s, 
uh, they began to divert the Mancus River upstream from where it would enter into the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. And this was all done without consultation with the Ute people and the reservation. And then uh, in the 1950s, settlers built the Jackson Gulch Reservoir on the Mancus River and further dewatered the Mancus River into the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. Here, the Utes were forced onto a reservation, presumably with the promise that, hey, this is your water, and the water was diverted, including with a huge reservoir project. Correct. What happened after the Ute people lost their access to the Mancus? How did they get water? They really didn't get water. Um, an important piece to this history is that the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation had minimal to no good quality water that the tribe could access as soon as the reservation was established, essentially. Wasn't water like trucked in for a time? Correct. Yes, water was trucked in to ensure that the tribe had some kind of good quality water they could drink. So when you have to truck in water, that's more time and energy and expense to receive water and less quality of life as well. Right. I mean, I can imagine what that means for a household, but also for someone trying to start a business, try to innovate, how that might put the damper on things. So Absolutely. how did the Utes start using the Dolores River instead then? We, we've been talking to this point about the Mancus. So the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation is in the very southwest corner of Colorado, and the Mancus River flows directly through the reservation and into the San Juan River, very close to Four Corners. In other words, it's the river that makes the most sense for the reservation. It's right there. Exactly. And the Dolores River never flows into the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. It actually flows south from the San Juan Mountains and comes into the town of Dolores, which is about 20 miles north of the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. And the river turns north after it hits the town of Dolores. So it never flows into the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. So an important aspect of how the Utes acquired Dolores River water is that they, on paper, had the most senior rights to the Mangus River. And in negotiations in the 1970s and 1980s, basically they gained recognition from the United States government that they could claim their own water rights, which, you know, historically the U.S. government did not really acknowledge or make any effort to honor indigenous water rights. So through all these negotiations, essentially, they agreed to subordinate their rights to the Mancus River, meaning that they would not claim water that would harm the settler users upstream. And in exchange for that, they then gained a right to the Dolores Project, which is includes McPhee Dam. And they gained the funding for the infrastructure to deliver water from the Dolores River to the reservation as well. I'm just going to guess here that they might have swapped their senior rights on the Mancus for somewhat more junior rights on the Dolores. Is that true? That's right. That's exactly how it worked out. And this is an excellent case study of how tribes have had to give up something to get something, as I've heard it said, hmm. where on paper they have these senior water rights, but in order to get the wet water, and a lot of water folks will talk about wet water versus paper water, hmm. they subordinated those senior paper rights. Actual water versus theoretical water. But, but we have to, of course, go back to the idea that the Ute aren't getting the water that they were promised, even under this arrangement, right? I mean, we're talking about small percentages of their allotment. So uh, explain that for us. Yes. Yeah, so because of really that dire need to have running water, the tribe gave up those senior water rights to the Mancus River, essentially. Mm -hmm. 
And in the way that water is allocated in Colorado and the West, the most senior water users can utilize all of the water that they're allocated. And those that are junior that or that came in after them have to essentially wait to see if they'll get all of their water once the senior users get that water first. What has happened to the Ute in the span of time between when they were getting water trucked on to the reservation and when they had access to the Dolores River? Like what what did that infusion mean for them? Well, almost immediately after receiving running water, in the late 1980s on the reservation, the tribe was able to start building businesses in a, in a way they never were before. For example, they built a casino within the same year, I believe, hmm. and they established the Wemenuch Construction Authority, and they have since built many other construction projects in the area. Um, so businesses were able to be built with water in place. And with that also comes the ability to practice self-determination on a stronger, newer level. Um, so for the tribe, this includes developing a school on their reservation, um, an elementary school that was recently opened, educating them in their own culture, in their own context, instead of having to send them north to Cortez, which is quite a trek. And there's a lot of culture shock for youth going between Cortez off the reservation and back onto the reservation. Hmm. And there's also effort to establish a fresh food market on the reservation, which is currently a food desert. And this is a common problem for many reservations being food deserts where you don't have access to high quality fresh food and also water deserts, right? As we already know, where having lack of access to running water. So with running, running water comes economic development and cultural self-determination that was not possible before. The same settlement that allowed the Ute Mountain Ute tribe to access the Dolores also promised a reservoir on the Animus River to bring water to the tribes. That project shrunk because of concerns from taxpayers and environmentalists. And so the Ute Mountain Ute and the Southern Ute tribes have not been able to tap the Animus for farming and ranching as they planned. This is certainly a pattern that has repeated itself in the Colorado River Basin. At this point, we've kind of come to the end of the dam building era. So the tribes keep getting the short end of the stick for multiple reasons. Now, we are in a relatively wet year. So when the Dolores is flowing, what does it mean for tribes? Well, this year is pretty much a boon year, I would say, uh, where everyone's getting 100% or more of their water. Um, but for the tribe, there's also the issue of going from having 10% or 40% and planning how to plant all your crops and limit what land you're going to grow on. So going from fallowed land to then trying to plant across all of the acreage that they have. Um, this for the tribe requires adaptability. Oh, that's interesting. A bounty of water is presumably a good thing, but this is not something you can adapt to, you know, remount an economy overnight. But the long-term trend with climate change is, of course, that we're going to see hotter, drier weather. And so... Is some of this a house of cards? Is some of this really vulnerable, given that their rights remain quite junior? There's certainly that concern of what does the future look like with less water? That is absolutely the question every day. And what I see with tribes, especially with the Ute Mountain Ute tribe, is that they are continuously requesting that they be present and incorporated and included 
in the discussions for the future of water management and not be treated as an afterthought or be excluded from those conversations as they have historically. Amarina, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Amarina Lee Martinez got her PhD from CU Boulder studying the Dolores River watershed. She joined us from Cortez. Watch a talk she gave recently for Crow Canyon Archaeological Center on YouTube. We'll have a link in our podcast. Okay, be right back with A Course on Happiness. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado voters have put the state at the frontier of psychedelic legalization, but what that will eventually end up looking like is still evolving. I'm wondering what's going to happen next as much as everyone else. The way the law is currently written with the new regulations for community healing, I see it as going underground again, yeah. What's happening with legal psilocybin, and what might the future hold? Read about it at CPR.org. The word happiness appears in this country's founding documents. We have the right to pursue it, according to the Declaration of Independence. And yet, happiness can be elusive. I mean, it's not a science. Or is it? Psychology professor June Gruber teaches a course at CU Boulder called Science of Happiness. And welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Professor Gruber's class has gotten rave reviews from students like Ethan Robinson and Amanda Rodriguez, who also join us. And welcome to you both. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. Thanks, Amanda. Okay, Professor, are you happy right now? Well, that's not a straightforward question, right? Happiness, as we've learned in the class, um, consists of many different pieces. But what I can say right now is I do feel some levels of positive emotions, excitement, hope, interest to talk with you about the class today. How do you define happiness? I mean, it sounds like it's got a lot of different inputs. It certainly does. What we know is that happiness in part relates to how we're feeling in the moment, um, how much pleasure or how much strain or stress, but it's more than just how we are in any given moment. It's also about how we think about our life satisfaction on a whole, the kind of bigger picture of how our life is going. Well, that's interesting. It makes me think of the idea uh, that I heard. It was actually in a management class about external versus internal locus of control. Okay, that that's kind of, uh, it sounds a little jargony, but the idea was like, do I allow my happiness to be based on something that comes from within or something external? How would you answer that? I think that's a really interesting question because we certainly see that the things that make us happy are less about ourselves and more about orienting us to other people in the other world. In fact, our social connections and relationships and appreciation for others are probably some of the strongest predictors of our happiness. Ah, so it is harder to be happy in isolation, I hear you say? That's right. We are such a social species as human beings. And the pandemic taught us that when we cut off our social ties or restrict them to the face of a computer screen, our well-being suffers. Amanda Rodriguez, what was your biggest aha moment in this course? Wow, um, that is a very, very good question. There's so many things to, to really 
put together in peace. But I think one of the aha moments was just kind of how you started off the conversation. You know, it's in this document for um, America of this pursuit of happiness, but happiness isn't somewhere uh, in the future. It's not a place that you get to. I think we can have that right now. And there are so many ways to do that. And there's such science behind finding it within each and every moment, finding that meaning of life versus meaning of meaning in life, excuse me, instead of meaning of life. Like it's not a secret. Um, it's not a, it's not something that is esoteric. It, it's, it's right within us. It's very much a part of how we view the worlds in relationship to ourselves. Oh, I think what I identify with there is the idea I mean, inherent in the idea of the pursuit of happiness is the idea that you don't have it right now and that it's something elusive you have to attain. But Professor, speak to that idea that it it could be within our grasp now. Can I can I create happiness in a moment? Absolutely. And in fact, we find that we sometimes make the pursuit of happiness more complicated than it needs to be. It's not some vast, huge quest that we need to aspire across our entire lifetime. But in fact, it is the things here and now that happiness is within reach of. So the more we focus on what's happening in the present moment, the more we savor and appreciate those relationships right in front of our eyes, that those are really the building blocks of happiness. Oh, that uh, smacks to me of gratitude. Do you think that's true, Professor, looking at what you are grateful for immediately around you? Yes. um, The science of gratitude is now several decades old and time and time again shows the more we appreciate relationships, whether it's expressing thanks to another person, whether it's keeping a gratitude journal, which students like Amanda and Ethan did in the class, where they thought of three things they were grateful for each day across an entire week. The different ways we can practice gratitude, um, it shows that not only does it benefit our relationship with the other person we're telling and giving thanks to, but then we benefit too and we end up feeling better, less stressed, and even more happy. Well, Ethan, I'm grateful that you've been patient and I'd like to ask you, what affected you the most in this happiness course at CU? The, The first year, by the way, it's been taught there. Um, that's a great question. I feel like a lot of things like, in fact, like, most everything that I learned in the class has greatly affected me and my personal life. Huh. What, what's an example of where you apply it? Um, even with just the things that we've been talking about, of just, like, taking time to slow down and really just appreciate what we have around us. I feel like most of the time we, like, just are moving from one thing to another so quickly that we don't really have time to just appreciate the people we are around, like, what we are doing in the different situations and just appreciate just like the small things. You have a new job. I think you just graduated CU, right? Yes. With a degree in psychology. That's true for many of these students who are studying psychology in the happiness class. How has that helped you, I don't know, in the early days of a new career, for instance? Yeah, with the new career, like I feel like especially with it when you're in a new career you can get caught up within your own like am i doing everything correct or am i doing like is this picture perfect am i doing it like exactly what they say yeah but i feel like with that mindset we can't really get to the fullest extent of what we want to do and so it has really then taught me like we can always take a breath and just like slow down appreciate what we are doing like and then for me especially appreciate that i am here helping other people and that i have a team of people around me that can also help me 
So gratitude for who and what is around you. I also hear that perfectionism may be, uh, well, the opposite of happiness. I Mm -hmm. certainly feel that myself. Um, CU is not alone in having a course like this. Students at Yale flock to one taught by Laurie Santos. She has a hit podcast called The Happiness Lab. And Professor, I I believe you and Santos were colleagues at Yale. Why, Why devote a career to this subject? I mean, in one sense, what could be more important to devote your time to than to try to understand the science behind not only what can make people happy, but what can be an antidote to times where we're struggling, we're suffering, and we're seeing rising rates of mental health challenges. I think this is a wonderful honor to be able to do this research in our lab and then share these sort of scientific discoveries with students and the public at large. I want to note that suicide is a leading cause of death among young people, especially in Colorado. We have invoked already the pandemic, which exacerbated things. Do you think your course is responsive to that fact? Absolutely. Um, To be perfectly honest, a primary motivation for teaching the course at CU Boulder right now was responding to the heels of a global mental health crisis among young adults and people, which has been a primary concern and focus of my students in our lab and the work we're doing, and hoping that by learning about these insights as to what can reduce stress levels, what can increase our sense of emotional balance, that this might be one piece to countering the very staggering rates, as you mentioned, of depression, suicide, and other mental health challenges. Amanda, was there homework? There was, um, and it was the best kind of homework. It was experiential uh, knowledge. Um, So we would have these science to life exercises and really speaking to um, what both of you have said, yeah, it's it's been a really lonely, isolated time. Depression and mental health is a serious issue. And one of the exercises that we had to do was was talk to someone um, and I believe it was a stranger and I talked to someone at the gas station and I asked them how their day was and like smiled at them and they they looked at me like like so taken aback and grateful and told me in retrospect like after the conversation how much that meant to them mm. because I think a lot of us are walking around the world thinking that our thoughts are true, that that we're alone, that, you know, we're not loved. We don't feel understood. And I, I don't know how many more people wish someone would go and just say hi, because I think that's all we want is this human connection and knowing that we're not alone in this. And like we care about one another when push comes to shove. And I, I found that over and over again of this connectedness and this empathy and this like smiling because guess what you matter i was walking to the bus this morning and a gentleman passed me on the sidewalk and he looked up and he smiled and it was just the loveliest change of the energetic in my morning ethan was there uh, something an exercise in this class you did that sticks out to you there definitely are. It's kind of hard to pinpoint just one of them since I feel like so many of them had had such a great impact on my life. Did you do that stranger thing? I did. Okay. Do, what, um, who did you reach out to? I went to just like a local coffee shop and I decided to just go up to someone and just ask them how the day is going. How'd and that go? It went pretty well. I, like 
I was thinking at first like that it wouldn't be as responsive, but the people I went up to, they were very responsive and like we're open to having a conversation with people, which I feel like you don't normally think. I feel like you're most of the time we think that people are just in their own mind, like mindset, and they don't want to be engaged with. But if you are able to get outside of that own, like your own thinking patterns, you can really see just how much we enjoy and we grow and like what we can get out of those types of engagements, even if they're as quick as one or two minutes long. Professor Gruber, before we go, you have done a TED Talk on the dark side of happiness. What is the dark side? I think the dark side is taking a narrow view of happiness and thinking it's all about feeling pleasure and smiling all the time and not having space for negative feelings. That can lead us not only to feeling we're never happy enough, but can also lead us to feeling less happy in moments we might otherwise be able to enjoy. So by the dark side of happiness, what we're really saying is that there is no one side of um, happiness that's just about pleasure, but that we need to think about happiness more broadly, that it's about having a diverse menu of different feelings in our lives. It can also include sadness at times or even frustration. And also that we ought to try maybe letting go and trying not so hard to pursue happiness just to be happy. But the more we let go and let ourselves experience a range of feelings and let happiness sort of come to us rather than obsess over it, um, then we're going to find greater emotional wellness and maybe set ourselves um, up less for feeling disappointed and feeling that the pursuit of happiness may never be possible. Okay, I'm just going to sum up some of what I have learned and will take away from this conversation. That happiness may be found in the present moment because the present moment makes me focus on what is around me that I might be grateful for. That there is happiness in connection and that I can create that sort of connection uh, with someone who's in my immediate circle at a coffee shop with a smile, something like that. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. We heard from June Gruber, Associate Professor of Psychology at CU Boulder, who taught this inaugural Science of Happiness class this spring. Ethan Robinson and Amanda Rodriguez were among her students. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. And Colorado Matters continues shortly. A heads up that there's mortifying content to come in a good way. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Celebrate Pride Month with Indy 1023. Celebrate love and community, visibility and progress. All this month, show your pride and listen to Indy 1023. People visit their members of Congress, often with very personal reasons for advocating a particular cause. CPR's Washington correspondent, Caitlin Kim, has this profile of one Colorado family. Just doing her introduction. Just <laughs> practicing. Get warmed up. That's Amy and Matthew Cummins from Colorado Springs. And the one who's practicing is Maddie, their 19-year-old daughter, who is about to enter Congressman Joe Nagoose's office. When Maddie was two, she was diagnosed with Rett syndrome, a neurological disorder. 
She gets around in a wheelchair and is nonverbal, communicating with the help of an iPad-like device that's eye gaze activated. Hi, I'm Madeline Cummins, and I am representing Children's Hospital Colorado. The family spent two days visiting the entire Colorado delegation as part of Family Advocacy Day. Maddie was there to highlight some important issues for her, no cuts to Medicaid, pediatric mental health, and training for pediatric specialists. Without this coverage, it would make my life so much harder than it already is. The family had never been to the Capitol before, but Matthew said his daughter was game. And we asked Maddie first, are you up for this? Because this is, this is going to be a challenging trip with all the various medications and, and therapies and extra equipment that we have to bring along with us. She's absolutely up for it. So she wants to meet the challenge. She's, she's a tough girl and she wants to show what she can do. Maddie spent about a month working on what she'd say. Thank you for listening to me. It's important to continue funding for patients like me. Maddie's mom, Amy, said at first it was intimidating walking into a senator's office, but by the end of day two... This experience was amazing. I felt like they really wanted to hear about the daily life of Maddie and of children with medical complex needs in Colorado. After a grueling eight meetings, Maddie was tired, so instead of using her device, she communicated with her eyes. If she looks straight at you, it's a yes. If she looks away, a no. Would you do this again? Come and lobby and meet the lawmakers again. Well, that was a fast uh, yes. 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 The Cummins family left feeling like lawmakers would at least try to help kids like Maddie. Whether they'll succeed remains to be seen. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner, back in just a moment to get mortified. Say the name Guggenheim, and you might think of art, museums, philanthropy. The Guggenheim fortune was one of the world's largest in the 20th century, and it all began in Leadville in the 1880s with Meyer Guggenheim. The poor Swiss immigrant ran a small import business in Philadelphia for over 30 years. Then he bought two silver mines in Leadville, which changed his luck. Both mines made the Guggenheim family a lot of money. Their mining profits grew by adding a smelter in Pueblo, then expanded beyond Colorado and built an international industrial empire with M. Guggenheim's sons. Of the eight sons, Solomon established the flagship Guggenheim Museum in New York City. Simon was Colorado's U.S. Senator for one term. Benjamin, father of Peggy Guggenheim, was on the Titanic. He did not survive. But another millionaire with Leadville roots did. Molly Brown. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. Adults read from their teenage journals in a series of live events called Mortified. It requires some courage, but the experience can be healing, especially because the audience is so affirming. I was invited to read from my diaries earlier this month for Pride. My entries were often in code to hide that I was gay. Throughout my performance at Denver's Oriental Theater, images would flash behind me of pages from my journals. A note that what you're about to hear contains some references to awkward adolescent sexual experiences. And I'll repeat a slur that I used to be called. Hi, I'm Ryan, and I grew up in one of the gayest places in America. And yet my immediate circle in Palm Springs, California, was anything but affirming. Even though I wouldn't have used the word gay in middle school, Everyone who heard me quote Barbara Streisand in a classroom speech would have. And when I say quote Barbara Streisand, I mean I just delivered the song People as a speech. 
You can just imagine how that sounded. In high school, I was an easy target, effeminate with poofy Jewish hair and a penchant for wearing red socks with my Birkenstocks to show my school pride, different from the capital P pride we're celebrating now. I didn't have a lot of friends then, but everyone knew me because I delivered the morning announcements on my high school's closed circuit TV station. <laughs> Other students liked to make fun of me. I was the news fag. And the bullying got so bad that my French teacher let me eat lunch in her classroom. Kids handed out cards that they'd made calling me the San Francisco treat. I kind of like it now. Like... <laughs> the valedictorian at our commencement ceremony even said on the microphone that he was grateful to be graduating so he wouldn't have to watch Ryan Warner on the morning news anymore. <laughs> Needless to say, I was very motivated to get out of there, and I worked my butt off so that I could graduate two years early. I knew... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I knew I was different, but I also knew at some level that my difference was good. I told myself that one day I'd be the next Peter Jennings, a network news anchor, and that hopefully I'd have a stunningly handsome boyfriend like Marky Mark. <laughs> or Teen Wolf. <laughs> and I mean both Michael J. Fox and Jason Bateman when he did the sequel. But before coming out or even graduating, I did what I could to escape. And so we're gonna start with an entry from when I was 15. I had convinced my mother to let me go to France for a year through the Rotary Club. August 24th, 1993. Today I opened a bank account. I am the proud customer of Banque Nationale de Paris. I deposited the traveler's check from mom. Traveler's checks for those under 40. <laughs> Today has been awful for feeling homesick. I've been very quiet all day and miss mom terribly. Last night, I had to call her. When I heard her voice, I began to cry. I miss speaking my native language and being with my mom. It's gonna be very hard to stay here. I decided to take a walk and use the cry in the shower technique. <laughs> so I took a walk and cried my eyes out. It was kind of a mixed bag. France let me get away from the homophobic kids back in the Coachella Valley of California, but I was clearly a mama's boy. There was a perfume store in my French Alpine town of Chambéry where they sold a fragrance that my mom liked to wear, Issa Tis. And when I found myself really missing her, I would go to the store and spray the perfume in the air to feel close to her. Sometimes I wrote out equations of how much time was left before I saw my mom again. I did love speaking French. I loved languages all around. And maybe because I sometimes got treated like I was from another planet, and I often felt like I was from another planet, I decided to come up with my own language to process what was happening in my life, especially one thing. 
here is where I reveal to my journal that I am gay. In five different languages. The third one down was my language. I called it communicatia. <laughs> I wrote about communicatia in one of my journal entries, making it sound like I had a biographer. A history of communicatia. <laughs> communicatia is a mix of sounds and letters. English, French, Japanese, Greek, and Hebrew have all influenced it. The language started in 1990. <laughs> now that sounds ancient, but then. Its founder, Ryan Warner, was a homosexual who used the language <laughs> a homosexual who used the language to write his deep thoughts and those that were most secret. And so, in my secret language, I let myself dream about a secret future. One day, I'll be traveling with my boyfriend. I'll be in shape and I'll feel so good, so free. So many exciting things await me. First kiss, first boyfriend, first time having sex. I can't wait. I shared about my secret attempts. I seriously flirted with an unnamed fellow. I even tried playing footsie under the table, but I couldn't reach. Sometimes I used communicatia for no apparent reason because I'd then go on to write basically the same thing in English. <laughs> This was in 1996. First time I ever picked up a guy, his name, Alex. Well, I'd prefer to write in English. <laughs> Alex was a very nice looking, slightly effeminate guy. I was under the impression that sleeping with him would have been the best result, but I was mistaken. He informed me he was not homosexual, but he said he was flattered. And some of my entries I'm surprised I didn't write in communicatia. <laughs> Ongoing self-hatred. My legs are fat, my stomach is flabby, my tits are visible, my posture is poor, I'm too tall, my face is zitty, my clothes are horrid. Gosh, what else? I feel like the ugliest person alive. Putting myself under a very cruel microscope as we all do sometimes. Fast forward a year to 1997, I'd officially come out to my friend Jonalyn during a stroll through a cemetery <laughs> She was lesbian, and so that was a safe place to start. And then I told my mom, who immediately joined PFLAG, the ally group. I got a new journal for my next trip abroad to Iceland, May 20th, 1997. I hope this trip will afford me the opportunity to refocus spiritually. I hope this trip will break the final fears of homesickness, solitude, and unfamiliarity. Most interestingly, extremely interesting, 
is that this is my first unstructured foreign trip alone. This is also my first vacation alone as a gay man. I've located some gay infrastructure. It's like a, is that a bridge? What is that? Whether to take part in it is the question. Whether to fool around is another question. I bought gifts for people while I was away. Gifts for everyone. Katie, bath salts, Ugo, Hard Rock Cafe t-shirt, Madeline, artwork, me, sweater, and gay t-shirt. And I wrote poems about being gay. This one is titled, Being Gay. Being gay. Such a task to be gay on earth. People like you from Paris to Perth. The insecurities are everywhere. Your looks, your smarts. Why should you care? To impress? To pretend? Who are you in the end? A gay man, a Jew, a human, a label? How to put them in order once on the table? Too much hair, not enough muscle, not so much fat. An emphasis on perfection focuses too much on that. But it's special to attract the same sex, an understanding, an awareness, not always a hex. If we can get past self-hatred and scorn, joy, celebration, and emotion reborn. <laughs> A poem dedicated to those who have just come out. It's a process which lasts a lifetime. In addition to creating an alternate language, I also created an alter ego in my journal. A glam queen. Are you ready to meet her? <laughs> La Quiche Lorraine. This is a, a play on my favorite French dish, quiche Lorraine. But probably just a discount version of my continued hero in heels, Lady Miss Kier from Delight. Okay, now you've met Miss Lorraine. Back then, I was very ready to meet someone, my person, but I struggled with self-confidence and, as you've heard, self-loathing, as so many young queer people do. I started making lots of lists to try to make sense of things. Here's one. I am very committed, but do I commit too quickly? I want a relationship, a partner, but am I desperate for one? Beyond good grades and being on air, I'm a worthy person. Amy, Katie, Chris, and mom love me because of something deeper. I wrote lists of qualities that I appreciated to try to give myself a confidence boost. I'm thankful for being tall, 6'2", long, beautiful fingers, including good nails, good nails. Expressive eyebrows. Quantity, quality of leg hair. Good, it's good. 
I also wrote lists about practical things. July 5th, 1998. Commitments I wish to fulfill short and long term. Financial independence. Perfection in checkbook balancing. <laughs> Paying utilities on time, if not early. Possible investments. Boca Burger? What, what do you think? Is it too late to invest in Boca Burger? It's, no, it's probably, it's probably impossible. Then, in a very exciting development, I met my first boyfriend. He was a nurse and a DJ at a gay club. Yeah, hot. And I started to write some very graphic lists. NPR listeners, cover your ears if you don't want to think about me differently when you hear me on the radio tomorrow. I wrote, thank spirit for the gifts thus far. Rotating the tip of my tongue around his tongue. Okay, we're not gonna go through the rest of these because it might be too mortifying. Right, so 20 years later, I can still read all of this stuff I wrote in Communicatia. And sometimes I still write in it when I am trying to process stuff. Recently, something began developing with a close friend of mine, and as they do at the start of any romance, my thoughts were spinning. Do I go for it? Do I not? So I wrote these thoughts out mid-air on Southwest napkins. You know, on a tray table, everyone can see what you're writing, so. And after a lot of back-of-napkin deliberation, I decided to go for it. So, what do you think? <laughs> does, does he look like Teen Wolf? Do you think he looks like Teen Wolf? <laughs> you know, I think he's better than Teen Wolf. He's a Jupiter star. Thank you. People, people who need people. My mortified performance recorded June 22nd at the Oriental Theater in Denver. Special thanks to Mortified's David Blott, photographer Josie V, and to audio engineer Tyler Bender. If you still have your teenage diaries and care to read from them, you should apply to take part in a show at getmortified.com. Getmortified.com. I'm Ryan Warner, and that is Colorado Matters for today from CPR News and KRCC.